Colossians chapter 2. Let's open our Bibles there. This week's going to be uh, basically part two of the, of the message I started last week. The big idea of chapter 2, basically, Paul's uh, addressing three issues of critical importance. Um, he's he's uh, concerned about the Colossians because false teachers have entered into the church. And <clears throat> so he's writing this letter uh, to encourage uh, these Colossians. And what he, what he does in chapter 2, really, is he just shares his heart. He pours his heart out to these guys. And, and if you'll notice there in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you. And what we looked at last week is that word conflict, conflict, it's the Greek word agon. We get the word agony from this, from this. And what Paul is sharing is that I'm agonizing over you guys. And what he goes on to articulate is these three main things that, that he's agonizing over concerning these Colossians. And, and he, he, he agonizes that, that they not be deceived. He, he agonizes that they would not be discouraged, but rather that they would be encouraged. And he agonizes that they uh, would not be divided, rather that they would be unified. And last week what we did is we looked at this issue of, hey, it's so critically important that they not be deceived uh, and that they be encouraged. And to say it in the negative, that they not be discouraged. Now, let me explain to you, and sort of just as, as sort of by way of introduction to, to this, this section, um, just give you kind of a story which explains why this is so critically important. Um, if you're around in 1991, and as I look at most of you were, as I scan, uh, we entered into the Gulf War, the first Gulf War in 91. You remember in the, in the Gulf War, it was, it was a really big deal that, you know, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait, and, and uh, he basically, it was an atrocity. He sent all his, his armed forces in there. Uh, they, they killed just thousands uh, his soldiers were raping women in the streets. They were going into hospitals and shooting people. They were unplugging the, the incubators and leaving newborn babies to die. Uh, it was horrible. And so what we did as a, as a nation, we rallied a coalition of 40 different nations, and we went in there to stop them. Um, and we were really effective at doing that. We started with an aerial campaign, and you saw it on television. And there, you know, you saw over 100,000 air sorties that, that were, were uh, initiated. And then after uh, 39 days, uh, we began the ground campaign. And when we began the ground campaign, again, if you remember watching, you know, CNN during that time, uh, and I think all of us were just glued to CNN, and um, as you were watching the ground campaign, they were concerned that there were going to be a lot of casualties of the coalition forces, so it was really controversial. What ended up happening was that the ground war was a phenomenal success for the coalition forces, but it was a nightmare for the Iraqi forces. They were decimated. Um, and what happened there, General Schwarzkopf, he, he designed a strategy based on U.S. doctrine. And his strategy was this. He relied on three main components. He relied on a sophisticated air power campaign 
to eliminate the command and control and, and to soften the targets. And then he relied on a heavily, uh, highly mobile and technically advanced ground force um, that would be able to surge and overwhelm the enemy with, with insane firepower and, and, and quickness of speed. And, and then he also employed a battlefield tactic which is uh, known as the flanking maneuver. And he did this to, to divide and to cut off the enemy fo- forces. And the plan worked flawlessly. The air campaign went off perfectly, and then it was followed by the ground campaign. Now, the Marines were the first ones in to Kuwait. Can I get a new raw for my Marines here, right? <clears throat> they were the first ones in. And, and so what they did is they thrust right into the heart of the Iraqi forces in Kuwait, and they cut through them like butter, Right? And, and they were joined by the Saudi and the Muslim forces, which, which attacked Kuwait along the coastline. Right? So, as this is happening, the sheer violence of their attack and, and the, 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 the vastness of it with these combined forces, what it did is it deceived the Iraqis into thinking that we were going to combat them with a full frontal force. Well, we weren't doing that. Meanwhile, while these guys were doing that, we had our tank uh, crews coming in uh, from, you know, this sweeping left hook, as it were, and they were going to go through the the, the desert in Iraq and come up behind and cut off the forces. See, because what the Iraqis had done, they had the Republican Guard and all these tank battles and all these tank crews, and they had them sitting off in Iraqi territory in reserve right outside of Kuwait. And what they expected was we were going to push in, their forces in Kuwait were going to fall back, and then they were going to be met by the Republican Guard, which was going to, you know, cut up our, our forces. They never dreamed that what we were going to do was that we were going to come around and, and hook in and cut them off. And here's why they, they didn't think it. At the time, GPS wasn't really widely known. Now, today, all of us have GPS on our phone. We probably have two or 300 GPS devices here in the sanctuary. They were unaware of it during that time. It's crazy with technology. It was 1991. It wasn't, you know, so long ago. But they didn't realize our forces had GPS in the tanks. And so they thought, well, it's, it's, it's featureless desert, and they would never come in this way. We came in that way, and we knew right where we were going, and our tanks are driving freeway speed, and they can shoot at freeway speed. And so we gave, you know, we're just like giving them the right in Kuwait, and then we came in with this left hook and just cut through their, the, the Iraqi uh, forces. And it, um, and it, it was crazy what, what happened. You, you can see some neat footage of it. The, the Discovery Channel's done some stuff. And what is it known as? I think the Battle of 72 Easting or something. Anyway, 73 Easting, whatever it was. It's the coordinates, and this is what they did. All the guys are like, cool, but what's this got to do with, you know, segment? <laughs> with the book of Colossians chapter 2. Well, here's the thing. It completely decimated the Iraqi forces. They lost over 8,000 tanks, armored personnel carriers, and pieces of artillery, and they lost over 300,000 troops, right? Uh, they, had, they were either killed, wounded, deserted, uh, or they surrendered. That was over half of their armed forces, right? And, and, and here's the amazing part. That all happened in only four days. 
And it led uh, Lieutenant General Tom Kelly to say this. He said, in 100 hours, Iraq went from being the fourth largest army in the world to the smallest army in its own country. In four days, right? And, and so the speed and ease which, with which they did this, that was because the coalition forces did three things. Same thing, three things that Paul was concerned about with these Colossians. They were deceived, they were discouraged, and they were divided. They were deceived, they were led to believe that there was a full frontal attack when meanwhile we're doing this flanking maneuver. They were discouraged by the speed and the lethality of the attack never dreaming that we would bring just the destruction upon them as swiftly and as, as awesomely as we did. Um, I mean, awesomely in a bad way. And they were divided. They were divided in the sense that their command and control was, was cut off and that their forces were split. And the result was they were discouraged. They, were, they, 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 they gave up. Uh, again, Paul, hey, I'm concerned, Colossians, that you not be deceived. I'm concerned, Colossians, that you be encouraged and that you not be discouraged. And Colossians, I'm, incur- I'm, I'm concerned that you should be united and not divided. See, last week what we saw was that Satan's desire, his goal, his, his objective in your life, in my life, in the life of these Colossians, his objective is to deceive us and to give a, get us to trust in anything other than Jesus Christ. And so what was happening with these Colossians was Satan was, was using these certain men to come into the church and basically to get them to buy off on a special brand of religion. And, 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 and the, what he really wanted them to do was, hey, Jesus is great, trust in Jesus, that's fine, but what I'd really like to do is I'd really like to get you to the place where you realize that Jesus isn't enough. See, I got special information for you. I got special knowledge for you that you need to add to your faith. And so it's Jesus and it's these particular works that I could tell you about that I would like you to be doing. Um, and and so, so this, is, this is what's happening here. And, and Satan is using it to a T. And he still uses that plan. He still uses this plan where he deceives us, and then when we trust in that, we're discouraged. See, for the Colossians, it's like, well, look, if you trust in this and you have your own special brand of religion, then what's going to happen is that anchor in your life is going to be tested, and ultimately it's going to fail. And when it fails, the enemy knows that you're going to be discouraged. And we talked about this last week. That the enemy, he twists this thing with us and he gets us to the place where we trust in ourselves. Subtly, we, we would all, if, you know, I would believe, articulate, look, I understand, I'm saved by Christ and Christ alone and his atoning work on the cross. But subtly what happens is we allow ourselves to believe that, man, my right standing with God somehow depends on me keeping everything in his word. And it's not that we have this license to sin But what we need to understand is just as we prayed, there will be those times as Christians when we struggle, when we stumble, when we fall, and we need to understand that our right standing with God isn't dependent on me getting it right. It's dependent on the fact that Jesus Christ died for my sin. And because he died for my sin, my hope is wrapped up in him and I can cast all my cares upon him knowing that he cares for me, knowing that he'll never leave me and he'll never forsake me. 
I just had a call this week. I, I, there was a friend of mine. I hadn't seen him in a long time. The Lord laid him on my heart. I called him up. Bro, I haven't seen you for a while. What's going on? And, and I left a message for him. He calls me back the next day. And uh, complete divine appointment. And, and he, he says, I'm, I'm not doing so well. I'm like, man, what's going on? Now, here's a guy in just the shorthanded version. He's, he's been through horrible trials in his life. And God brought him from a place where these horrible trials just brought him to the end of himself. And, and he met Christ, surrendered his life to him. God cleansed him, saved him, transformed his life. He quit drinking. And, and he's walking with the Lord. Well, what happened was he got to a place, and this is what he shared with me. He's like, I'm not doing so well. I'm drinking again. And he says, I, I, I just can't, I can't shake it. I'm like, brother, what would you do last time when you quit? He goes, well, I just quit. Well, here's what happened. Last time he just quit, he, he came to the end of himself. And he surrendered to the Lord. And what happened was he was deceived by the enemy. The enemy got him to a place where he thought, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. He, you know, I, I'm doing great. And, and life's going well. And uh, you know what? I can handle a drink or two. And he was deceived. And so what happened then, he began to drink. And then he got discouraged. And then ultimately what God did is he divided him. See, I asked him, I said, listen, man, I know you. You used to come home every day from work and you'd read the Bible. And you'd, at night, you'd, your kids, you'd put your kids down to bed. You'd read them the Bible every single night. You've read through the entire Bible two or three times. I know you. He's like, yeah. I go, and I knew the answer to this question. I said, are you reading your Bible now? He says, no, I'm not reading the Bible. And I said, and here's why you're not. I said, the reason you're not is because you were deceived by the enemy. And the enemy deceived you into thinking that you were good and that you could handle it. And so when you lost control and he got his way back in and he caused you to stumble, then what happened is he told you that you can't read your Bible every day because you were a hypocrite, that you're drinking and that now I can't come home and read the Bible because that'll make me a hypocrite. And he just started laughing in a way that said, you just, you know, punch me in the stomach kind of thing. That's exactly what's going on. I said, bro, listen. And this was just the Holy Spirit just, you know, speaking to him and and, and me thrilled to be in that place. I said, David said, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I said, you need to get back there. You need to go back to reading the Bible and and Satan's going to tell you that you're being a hypocrite because you're drinking and you're reading your Bible. And I said, you need to get back there. Yeah, you need to stop drinking, but you need to stop drinking by the power and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need to get back in the word. You need to beg the Lord to strengthen you to, to, to drop the alcohol like you did before. And see, this is all because he deceives us, he discourages us, and he divides us. And so we looked last week at the deceiving and the discouragement. What I want to do today is I just want to focus on this issue of the enemy dividing us. And, and to say it in the positive, as Paul, as Paul says, that, that we may be knit together in love. That's what he says there in verse 2. He says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. And I want to just dig deeply into that phrase. Now, if, you, if you're a note taker, you might circle that phrase, knit together in love. And nearby, you could write this. You could write, to cause to fuse together and become one. Because that's literally what that means. Fuse together and become one. 
And Paul uses this, this phrase, this, this idea of being knit together in love with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He uses it in other places. He used it in Ephesians 4.16. Uh, we'll put it on the screen for you. He's describing how Jesus fuses us together in the church. Here's what Paul says to the Ephesians. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. That idea of fit together, that's, that's uh, knit together, that's fused together. So he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now this was Jesus' prayer for his church. When Jesus was here on the earth, he made a promise and a prayer that are inextricably linked. Uh, his promise was in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. <clears throat> His prayer was in John 17, where Jesus prayed, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. So Jesus' promise and his prayer, inextricably linked, his promise, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, his prayer, Lord, I'm praying that they may be one as you and I are one. See, because here's what Jesus understood. The greatest threat to the church isn't from the outside, it's from the inside. That's the greatest threat to the church. And, and, and the Lord understands that Satan's desire, his plan, his objective, just as the U.S. knew exactly what it was going to do to Iraq, we're going to deceive them, we're going to discourage them, we're going to divide them, and we're going to defeat them. And that's Satan's plan with us. And so the Lord knew, hey, you know what's going to happen is they're going to be divided. If Satan can get us attacking one another, then we aren't going to have the energy to go on the offense with him. And so this is what the Lord is praying. He's saying, man, I'm praying that you would be one. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And you'll want to turn over there because I'm pretty much going to spend the rest of the message here in 1 Corinthians 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Paul is pleading with these Corinthians that there shouldn't be divisions between them. And uh, listen to what he says. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He says in verse 11, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. That word contentions means strife and rivalry. And Paul says, listen, I understand. He says, I'm pleading with you that there be no divisions among you. The word divisions that he uses, it's the word schism. And here's what it means. It means to rip or tear apart. Now, let me see a show of hands. How many of you have, have been a part of a church where people have ripped and torn, them, torn each other apart? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, fair amount of you. How many of you uh, have been a part, and this will probably be the same hands, of a church that has gone through some sort of a division or split? 
Let me see. Yeah, see, do you notice how many hands are up? See, this is Satan's common tactic. So it's, it's really important for us to pay attention to this. Now, I'll just simply tell you this, that by God's grace, we have enjoyed incredible unity here within the church. And we're very grateful that, that God has given to us unity and strength and, and, and that connectivity. But this is something that we need to constantly be on our guard about because Satan's intention is to come and to cause division and to cause a split and to cause factions. And so what we need to do is we need to, as Paul prays for the, for the, the Corinthians, as he encourages the Colossians, hey, there can't be any unity uh, among you, man, we need to take that seriously. Because this is something that's very common. It's been said that the only exercise some Christians get is jumping to conclusions, running one another down, and stabbing each other in the back. And, and we've, we've seen that. We've experienced that. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, man, I plead with you that there be no divisions. That's why he tells the Colossians, man, I'm agonizing that you be knit together in love. Again, we need to be knit together in love. So how is that practical? How do we do that? What is, what is the, 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 the way we go about doing that? Well, the first thing you need to do, and I, and I suppose this would be the first point that I would make if you're taking notes, we need to identify what unity is and what unity isn't. Right? We need to understand what's unity and what isn't unity because there's, there's some debate about that. And I would tell you this, that unity is not absolute tolerance of every belief and philosophy that's out there. It's not absolute tolerance. See, there's a, there's a thing going around right now where there are, are many calling for tolerance and, and for there to be, you know, this idea of, of, well, we just need to be open-minded. We need to learn how to coexist. And I'm always, it's amusing to me to see that those people who call for tolerance and open-mindedness, they seem to be tolerant and open-minded of everything other than Christianity, but when it comes to Christianity, they're closed-minded. Just, you know, and I saw something, just, this reminds me, I was reading in the paper, and recently there was a church in Seattle, and there was a building there in Seattle that, that they leased, they wanted to move in, it was a, a, an historic building in the downtown area, and there, were, there was a public comment section in the local paper as they, as they published the story, and people commenting on this church moving in, and, and overwhelmingly, People were outraged that this church had been allowed to move into this historic building. Now, here's the hilarious part. The historic building was a church, <laughs> right? But over the years, because the church had been in disrepair, and for many years, Seattle was the least church city in America, it had become a performing arts center. It had been, become a community theater. It had been used for all of these various things, and it had fallen into disrepair. So this church decides, hey, we'll move in there. We'll do services there. People freak out. And this one person who's commenting, she says this. She says, you know what? I really thought there were more open-minded people in Seattle than that talking about who on earth would let these people go in there and, and who would support this. And I thought, you are so blind, you don't even see the hypocrisy of your own statement. It's hilarious to read it. She's all upset with the, the fact that they're closed-minded, and she's so closed-minded, she won't even, you know, let them be in there. Now, see, that the, the, the kind of 
reveals the issue that many believe that unity means that we get rid of all of our convictions, that we, you know, all of, all of the distinctives that we hold, that we let those go, and everything that makes us uniquely Christian, we compromise on that. And, and basically, you know, that, that in the name of tolerance for everyone, that, that we, you know, just coexist, man, that we embrace and be open-minded of, 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 these, different, of, of these different beliefs. And, and, you know, that's what unity is. That's what the church should be about. But, you know, when we do that, we're no, we're no longer operating as faithful Christians. See, because that, all that does is that elevates unity and tolerance above the truth. Now, that's not saying that when people hold to beliefs and, and, and all that are contrary to Christianity, that we hate them or we treat them badly. But here's what it does mean. It means that there's a line that we need to draw and say, that's sin. And we need to boldly be able to say, no, (coughs) that's not something that we are called to tolerate. That's not something that we're called to condone. That's not something that we're called to coexist with. That's something that we're called to say, you know what? That's sin. And I need to draw the line on that. And, you know, and and I would say this. There's, There's a couple of biblical examples of this. You know, if you, if you, for instance, you read about Jesus going into the temple, and, and he goes into the temple, and what he finds is that the religious leaders have set up all of these, these tables, and they're changing money at the tables. They're basically saying, oh, you're coming into worship. Yeah, we can't, we can't, uh, we can't receive any money that, that, that's not temple money, and so you're going to need to exchange your money here. And as they would exchange the money, they would charge them a, an exorbitant exchange rate, just really bad for them, really good for, for the religious leaders. And so they're making merchandise to the people. They're fleecing the flock. They're making money just hand over fist. And, and so, the, you know, Jesus comes in and he sees that. And, and he sees, you know, the people, that another thing the religious leaders would do, you would come in, maybe you're bringing in your animal to sacrifice, and these religious leaders would look and they would say, oh, you know what? your animal has an imperfection. And they would point out some sort of, you know, imperfection. And they would say, but you know what, I'll tell you what, we can take that away for you, but we, we've got another per- good sacrifice, approved sacrifice you can buy from us. Again, they're fleecing the flock. And so people, well, okay, I guess. And you can just see it, you know, let's lead your, your dirty animal away. Has he gone in? Okay, let's bring him back out. Oh, we've got a clean animal for you right here, right? I mean, this is what they were doing. And so Jesus sees this, and what do you think he does? He says, oh, you know what? We've got to coexist. We've got to tolerance. We have to tolerate one another. He doesn't do that. Jesus makes a whip, and he beats, the, starts beating everybody with a whip. Jesus, right? You are, my father's house should be called a house of prayer. He draws the line. Here's another biblical example. We have an example in the book of Galatians. And a very similar situation to what's going on with the Colossians in that these guys come into the church that Paul established and they say, oh, you know, Jesus, cool, that, that's fine, but you know what? And they're these, these Jewish believers and they're saying, it's Jesus and circumcision. So if you really want to worship the Lord, you have to be circumcised. And again, does Paul say, well, well tolerance, coexist, you know, that's fine. No, he draws the line. In fact, he says something pretty blunt. He says, I wish those people, I'll just paraphrase, who are saying this, I wish they would cut themselves off. Here's what he means by that. 
He's saying, they're saying that you need to cut a little part of your human anatomy to be holy. I wish they'd just cut the whole thing off. That's what he means by that when he says that. And, and so this is not the, oh, kumbaya, we all get along, let's tolerate one another. No, there's a line, there's a point where we have to draw the line and we have to say, hey, that's what's going to happen, that's what we're going to insist on. See, because if you're going to worship unity and tolerance, you have to reject God's word to do it. And I want you to notice what Paul says here is in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he says... Uh, he links unity with having the same judgment and with having the same mind. He's, I, I, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. A couple of things on that. That word judgment, it speaks of a view or a, an opinion, and it speaks of a view or an opinion that leads to a decision. And as Christians, we are called to make decisions every single day. We're called to decide on factors all the time, different situations, different circumstances, different scenarios. Have a teenage child, you will make decisions all the time. What, what am I going to allow? What am I not going to allow? And, and it's, it, it, it basically, it's a view or an opinion that's going to shape that decision, that leads to a decision. And in order to hold a particular view or an opinion, then it, and for us as Christians to hold the same view as what Paul is talking about, he says we have to have the same mind. And that word mind, it means to know, to understand, and to perceive. So what is it that we're supposed to know, to understand, and to perceive? Here's what it is. It's the word of God. That's the truth. The truth is what we're supposed to know and discern and deceive, and it's the truth that's to dictate and to govern the decisions that we make. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8. He said, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth of his word. See, the idea is that we are to unify around the truth, and the truth is found only in Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John tells us that the Word of God is truth and that Jesus Christ is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And listen to what Jesus said. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Christian unity does not mean open-handed tolerance of all things, and it can't mean that because truth dictates that not everything is tolerable. That's my point. There are some things as Christians that we have to say, I can't tolerate that. And we can't say, well, for the sake of unity, I'm going to tolerate that. Because what happens then is at the expense of offending this person, in the name of truth, in the name of unity, what I've just done is I've offended God by not drawing a line. And so it's important that we be ready to draw that line. Now, the second thing that unity does not mean, the first thing that unity means, does not mean is that it's open-handed tolerance of everything. The second thing is the other side of that coin. It doesn't mean that we have to all be in a uniform, uh, that, that there's uniformity in, in, in certain things. Yes, uniformity as it pertains to the truth, but there's a lot of things in Christianity that, that are gray areas, right? Um, as an example, your attire, how you dress to come to church. You know, some people feel like, well, because I want to, I want to demonstrate a, a reverential love of God, then when I come to church, I, I want to dress up. And there's others that think, 
it's not about the outward, it's about the inward. I want to come to church and I want to glorify God. And sometimes what happens, and this is my point, is that we, we can have a tendency to get into this place where we place our burdens on other people that aren't scriptural. And so somebody comes to church into where everybody's wearing suit and tie and, you know, they're wearing shorts and flip-flops and everybody looks at them and says, sinner, right? And I'll just tell you, I mean, you know, we're casual, Southern California, so this is really our, our, our issue here. But, but we really don't care how you come to church. As long as everything's covered, we're cool, you know? Um, and ladies, I mean, that, just a little side note. Some of y'all might want to take a walk with that. Um, you know, make sure everything's covered. But, but, you know, there's the issue is just as long as everything's covered, we're cool, right? And, and so you don't want to call attention to yourself or whatever. But the point, this is the thing I want you to get. Sometimes we have a tendency as Christians to think, well, I want to do this. I feel led to do this. And it's not this black and white scriptural thing. It's just a, I feel led of the Lord to, to live in this way kind of thing. And then what happens is we start projecting that on other people and we call that sin when other people don't, don't hold to the same convictions that we are that aren't necessarily black and white scripture. I'll give you a really good example of this. Um, alcohol. Now, I will tell you, for me, alcohol has ruined a great number of my family members. I, for generations going back, alcohol has not been good to the Leavenworth family. And, and so I hate alcohol. Uh, uh, you know, in my before Christ days, it, it caused its own level of destruction in my life. And so if, if I had my way, nobody would drink. And so I just say that as a preamble to what I'm about to say, just so you, so you know where I'm coming from. That attitude was reflected in our original alcohol policy here at the church. Because basically, and I'll shorthand into one sentence what my alcohol policy was. My alcohol policy used to be, look, if you want to serve at Reliance Church, don't drink. And if you want to drink, then you ain't serving here, you know, kind of thing. That was my attitude. And then, you know, I got convicted because that was Ted's personal prejudices applied to something that the Bible doesn't say. And let me be clear. The Bible says that we're not to be drunk. Um, The Bible says, you know, any kind of, and most people when they drink, you know, they get their buzz on. It's like, I'm not drunk. I I just got a little buzz going. Hey, let me tell you, that is sin, biblically speaking. So, so most people drink in, in that way. And I'll, I'll just tell you another little thing. I mean, I could talk the rest of the afternoon about this, but most people that I counsel that have had profoundly problematic issues in their marriage, it's tied back to, to alcohol. Every instance of infidelity, every instance has been tied back to alcohol. So, so I hate it. I think it's unwise. I think that we do better when we abstain from it. Some of you struggle with alcohol. And, and so for you, alcohol consumption, I would just categorically tell you it's sin because we're commanded to leave, to flee our youthful lusts. Uh, and, and so <clears throat> having said that, the Bible doesn't forbid the, the consumption of alcohol. In fact, we brought a group of guys up here as deacons today in the Bible. You know, as I shared the qualifications of a deacon, you may have heard, not given to much wine. Now, it didn't say not given to wine. It says that for the pastors, the elders, which, again, biblically, for me to drink, scripturally, is sin because I'm a pastor. It's sin on a whole nother level just because of my background for me. But for that alone, I mean, our policy here is pastors, elders, biblically, you can't drink. You're done with drinking for the rest of your life kind of thing, right? But deacons, no, it says not given to much wine. 
Again, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't get drunk. That's already a given in Scripture. What, when it says to not given them much wine, it means that just the, the, the act of, oh, you know, I, I had a beer and a hot dog. It's rare. It's, it's rare, their consumption of alcohol. And so what happens frequently is that we, and I'm using this as an example. The example is when we start calling things sin that the Bible doesn't call sin, and what it does is it causes division within the body of Christ, and we start running around like, you know, God squad, you know, you're in sin, you shouldn't be drinking, I saw so-and-so had a glass of wine with dinner, whatever, you know what, what does the Bible say? That needs to govern everything that we do. And if we would live our lives that way, then what would happen is we wouldn't go over on this extreme where it's like, oh, you know, all roads lead to God and everything's good. No, because we have to draw the line at certain issues. We wouldn't go all the way over to this issue where we say nothing's good and you got to wear a suit and tie to church and you can't drink and you can't smoke and you can't chew and you can't go out with girls that do and, you know, all of that stuff, right? And we have to draw a line, but it's got to be a biblical line. That's the point. And so many times in churches, there's division over things that aren't biblical. And it's just ridiculous. And so if we would remain a people that are committed to just knowing the Word of God and living our, our, our life out in the best that we can to obey the Word of God... We're going to save ourselves a lot of heartache when it comes to issues of, of, of unity. And, and to say it in the negative, when it comes to issues of being divided. Right? And, and so, you know, I would just simply tell you, what, what does unity mean here at Reliance Church? I'm going to shorthand this for the sake of time, but basically there's, there's, there's three different things in terms of, hey, what does unity mean here at Reliance Church? It means we're unified theologically. It means we're unified relationally. And it means that we're unified philosophically. Theologically, hey, what does the word say? We're, we're going to just focus on, hey, let's study the word. Let's know the word. Let's be a church that's given to, that holds the scriptures in high esteem. That, that the, the, the word of God is the word of God. It's infallible. It's, it's, there's no error to it. And it says very clearly, you're a sinner saved by grace. That there ain't nothing good in you. That deep down inside, you're not really a winner, you're a loser. And so am I. And what makes us a winner is Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And so, so we, we align theologically. Secondly, we align relationally. You know, Acts chapter 2 talks about how the believers were together. They had all things in common. They focused on the teaching of the Word of God. And they focused on prayer. And they focused on getting together for regular times of fellowship. And they focused on a regular time of partaking of the Lord's Supper together as the Lord had instructed them. And so for us, relationally, these are the primary things that we focus on. And what we found is that we work on getting connected relationally. Because Jesus said the two most important commandments in the Word, love God and love others. And what we found is if we can create environments where we can get connected relationally, one with another, then we foster relationships that ultimately, at the end of the day, and I'm going to talk about this in just a second, we foster those relationships where when we get off track, someone knows us well enough to pick up the phone and call us. And say, dude, I love you, man. And I noticed there's no unity here because you're gone. And we need to work on this. 
We need to get back together in this. And so we, we work on, on this relational connectivity. And philosophically, this idea where the Bible basically says, hey, that we're called to make disciples of all the nations. Jesus' instructions to the, to the disciples in Acts 1.8, you know, <laughs> You, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is our call. This is our mandate. And so philosophically, as a church, we say we are called to make disciples. We're called to plant churches. And so with a unified heart and a unified attitude, that's the way we focus on, on unity here. Now, collectively, as the church together... As we're called to unity, it doesn't just mean that we believe it. It means that we practice what we preach. And I want to I close focusing on this. this is my, my, my fourth and final point is this, that we are unified in accountability. We're unified in accountability. See, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 23 and 24. He says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Now, if you're like me and you read that, my mind and my attitude goes to the end of verse 24. That, oh, how can we spur one another on towards love and good deeds? That sounds so cool, doesn't it? Sounds so much like a healthy church. Let's spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And and it's kind of like, you know, a... My, in my mind's eye, I see it this way. I see it like, you know, you can go. You're, you do it. Come on. It's like a cheerleader encouragement kind of thing. But see, here, here's where it gets interesting. Because as you look at this, first of all, if you look at that word consider, it, it means this. It means to observe attentively and to fix one's eyes upon. Christian Do you like it when somebody observes your life attentively and fixes their eyes on you? Do you enjoy that? Do you you like, oh, goody, somebody's watching me really closely. No, we tend to hate it. It's like, mind your own business, man. Don't you have a life? Why do you got to live my life? Why why don't you live yours? You seem to have all this free time to live my life, right? And, and, And so this is the attitude But we're instructed that that's what we're supposed to do as a healthy body. And here's the purpose, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. Okay, so I need to be watching you so that I can encourage you. Well, no, not not always. See, that word spur, that also has a very significant meaning. See, that word spur, it it literally, it means a sharpening. But I want you to think about a spur in the side of of a horse that's, that's a, little, a little stick with a, sh- with a sharp instrument in your side. That's the idea here. It's, it's again, it, it's defined this way, incitement and irritation towards something. Incitement and irritation towards something. Do you know, scripturally, I'll give you a good example of where this was used. It was used in the life of Paul and Barnabas in, in, Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. If you, if you were with us when we went through the book of Acts, you know that there in, in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas working side by side... All of a sudden, they have this bitter disagreement, and it says that they, they disagreed so sharply that they split up. They split company. <clears throat> Paul went this way, and Barnabas went this way. And the issue was that they, their disagreement was an was a incitement. It was an irritation. It was a sharp poke 
And what they ended up doing was they tapped out and they split up. Now, God used it for good. You know, in, in all things, God works together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so what God ended up doing in the life of Paul and Barnabas was they each took another partner and, they, you know, God basically doubled down. And he didn't have one team, now he had two teams. But I wonder, I wonder if when they were incited, when they were spurred, when they had this bitter disagreement, I wonder if God was using those two Christian brothers to, to do a work one within the other. And here's where I bring it home. This is, this is where we're going to finish on. We're going to go into communion. We are uni- we're united in accountability. And we in the body of Christ, what, what happens so often is different situations and circumstances happen to where there's a point of contention and we argue and we disagree bitterly. And what God would have us to do is to consider one another how through that point of contention we could incite one another, spur one another, sharp stick one another towards love and good deeds. And, and so what we're really called to as Christians is to allow one another into our lives to the point to where I tell my brothers in Christ, look, you know, the reason they call them blind spots is because they're blind spots. You're blind to them. And so I give you permission. As a matter of fact, I'm asking you, if you see something in my life that's not right, would you, as my brother in Christ, would you call me on it? And when they call me on it, I've got this mental image of a guy with a sharp stick, and that's what it feels like. It's like, wait, what? You know, why are you doing, what do you, and we have a tendency to get angry. No, we need to let one another in so that we can say, hey, I'm seeing something in your life, my friend, that isn't glorifying to God. And again, not don't be the God squad. Hey, God squad here. Got to show up. Got an issue here. We got a report of, uh, you know, that's not it. It's an issue of saying, man, I love you. And I'm, I want the best for you. And so, so l- let me into your life. I'm going to let you into my life. We're going to spur each other on. And sometimes we're going to see some ugly stuff within one another, and that's not the, 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 the time to say, ooh, I saw that. You know what? I'm done with you. I'm finished. I'm out. And don't you know the Lord has convicted me on this this week? Because we have a tendency to do that, don't we? There's something, there's some issue, there's something, and we see it, and we see an ugliness in another person, and we go, you know what? That's nasty. That's ugly, and I'm done with you. God help us, because he's called us to unity. And so we need to be those that say, Lord, so help me. I'm a piece of work. Help me. Help me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Somebody had something posted on Facebook this week, and it said um, uh, something to the effect of, why do, you, why do you get so angry with other people just because they sin differently than you do? And I thought, oh, man, that hurt right there. Because we have a tendency, I'm strong in this area, and so I see somebody else sitting in that issue, and I'm going to criticize them and condemn them. And don't. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Start being brothers and sisters in Christ that are going to love one another enough to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Amen?